I'm happy to sit on the ground. Yeah, let's do that. Do you want a cushion? It's an op shop, Ali. There's everything we can provide. I loved that moment earlier where that guy was just carrying a baby around sideways on his hip. <laughs> and you were like, do you need a change room? Change room. And he was like, yeah. And you were like, hmm, because there isn't one. But then you were just like, here, here's a baby rug just right here. You can use it. It's in the free pile. You can even keep it. Have it. Take and he it. just like started. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Saltgrass, a show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. My name is Ali Hanley. What you just heard was Tiffany Inglis and I chatting as we got ready to record today's episode. Tiff is the manager and one of the founders of The Good Op Shop in Castlemaine. We met at the shop just after closing time, and as she closed up, I wandered around looking for the best place to record for sound quality. The shop is located in a huge shed. It used to be a hardware store and now is the home of not only the shop, but a couple of offices and other small businesses. The property is owned by the salvage yard who are basically a huge op shop for building materials. And don't worry, I will be sharing an episode I did with them soon too. So we ended up sitting on cushions on the floor, surrounded by all of the racks of clothes and shelves of bric-a-brac, which was the least echoey place we could find and quite comfortable to be honest. So I've been following the story of TIFF and this particular op shop since it started a year and a half ago because its existence is 100% about benefiting the environment. And when I say that, I don't say it lightly. TIFF and her partner Chris started the op shop to raise funds for conservation and other environmental, climate and waste management type projects. The op shop itself is also conveniently kind of a significant waste management mechanism. It keeps items out of landfill and gives them a new life one way or another. Aside from running the op shop and managing where the funds go to, TIFF is also busy organising upcycling awards, recycling initiatives and educational programs. And it's all done while creating a culture that the people who volunteer there all, as far as I could tell, say they valued as much as they valued the good works that are being done there. I have three interviews with volunteers that you'll hear in this episode, in amongst the larger conversation Tiff and I had, sitting there on the shop floor. Before we begin, I want to acknowledge that Saltgrass is produced and the Good Op Shop resides on Jara Country, the home of the Jajawrung. They have been zero waste ecosystem guardians and custodians of this land for countless generations and continue to lead the way and generously share their wisdom on how to live here better. I give thanks to them and honour Elders past, present and future, always was and always will be, Aboriginal land. Salt of the Earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. My partner and I, Chris, started this op shop in the middle of COVID, so 2021. And it was also winter, so <laughs> it was very cold. I was volunteering at the Salvos on a Saturday morning and I went home and Chris said to me, oh, you know, you're always op shopping because I love op shopping. And he said, oh, you're always at an op shop. Why don't you open your own? I just laughed and brushed it off. And then after volunteering at the Salvos, I recognised that they made money, they turned over stock and they kept a whole lot of things 
out of landfill, which was awesome. We recognised that there was a gap in op shops locally. There's a couple of op shops that cater for social welfare and people needs. There's also one that caters for animal welfare. And we just thought that maybe there could be something to help fill the gap around environment and conservation and raising funds for that. So we did a bit of a back of the envelope on what it would cost to set up and how much we'd need and then we decided that was viable for us. And then the next step was just a matter of finding somewhere suitable to set it up. Something that had enough space, had parking, had accessibility and somewhere that we could make a space for sorting in particular out the back. We looked around for a while, I reckon we looked for six to 12 months and we asked at a few different places and uh, we approached Anna and Matt at the salvage yard and Anna said, sure, go have a look at the space and check it out if you're interested. And then we continued talking with her and we talked about what we wanted to do and, and how it would work. I think she was a slightly nervous at the start about car parking, but then we got it started and they've been great. Like they've been so supportive and I think they really appreciate how it complements their business given that they have the salvage yard and recycle building materials and so yeah it's a really nice partnership and my dream would to turn this whole place into sort of a secondhand slash repair hub. That'd be yeah. awesome. And what were the early days like? Did you the find early it days was an easy easy like explosion people were really interested or were there a few moments where you were like oh shit this might yeah, not work? That's a good question actually we did say we said let's give it 12 months and if we don't work we pull the pin and it was good to have that marking point as something to work towards so we try not to panic too much. Yeah. The early days we definitely didn't have this much stuff. <laughs> I look back on on photos of when we first opened and it was it's just unbelievable how empty it was and now comparatively how much we have in stock. It I was... remember coming in in the early days. Oh, do you? And I was like, wow, heaps of people have given them so much stuff, but there's still so much room for more. <laughs> and it didn't have that busy, busy, super cluttered feel of a yeah. long established op shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is what we are now. <laughs> I don't know, 18 months in, I feel like it's long established. I don't think there were any hiccups. It was more behind the scenes, if anything, like us not knowing anything about running a business. Yeah, we had a few interesting things that we had to just sort of surmount. And I've been really lucky in terms of just volunteers as well. People have wanted to come in and I've got some people that have been here right from the start. So I feel very lucky about that. And they've been trickling in constantly ever since. So it's just been awesome. And have you found that people have understood your mission, your motivation? And Because I know a lot of people feel ambivalent about supporting some of these church-run op shops mm -hmm. where maybe they disagree with some of the politics of the church. There probably wouldn't be a day go past where people ask, where do your funds go to or who are you? Because we are a private, not-for-profit, if you like. It's and not so like you're in it for the bucks. No. Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting because I noticed that I walk in here and it feels like an old school op shop where you come in and you get a proper bargain. That's what we hope. I feel like a lot of op shops these days are so expensive. There I'm like, I can't afford an op shop anymore. Yeah, there's, there's, there's op shops and then there's op shops. Yeah, yeah you're right. And uh, we've definitely tried to pitch ourselves at that original type of op shop end. Yeah. Where you go in and, and you find something. And all our prices are set prices within reason. Yeah. You know, we don't have mark up things if they seem special. Mm -hmm. you know, all books are the same price. All clothes are the same price. All toys are the same price. So I just, it helps. And also I just can't be bothered pricing everything. No. Keeps <laughs> it simple. Got time. And, and then you're not arguing with people over orange tags or blue tags or yeah. whatever it is. So yeah, that was our hope. And it's also great in that it keeps stuff moving over. 
Mm. We can't keep stuff here, there's just no capacity. So if it turns over, we're winning. And it's staying out of landfill and we're making a bit of money for the environment. So it's yeah. good. And so what sort of causes have you been giving money to? We focused quite strongly on conservation. I mean, that's one of the main reasons we set up the op shop was to give money back to conservation and to promote conservation and revegetation. So we've given money to two local landcare groups over the last 12 months, so Castlemaine Landcare Group and Muckleford Landcare Group. And with that money, they've gone on to plant, I think, the equivalent of 700 plants and trees locally, which is really great. And the Castlemaine Landcare Group, they worked with the local high school, so Castlemaine Secondary College, and got the Year 10 kids out to do the planting and got them involved. So I'm hoping we could do that annually and keep supporting them to yeah, get that experience. So I'm going to cut in here and introduce you to one of the Good Op Shop's volunteers, Beth Malik. And as you will hear, she was instrumental in helping Tiff figure out who to give money to in terms of conservation organisations and how to do it well. So I'm Beth Malik, Executive Director of an organisation called Wettenhall Environment Trust, which is a grant-making organisation that gives grants out to nature conservation projects all around Australia. And because Tiff knew of me at this work, she asked to meet with me when she was setting up the Good Op Shop because the intent behind the Good Op Shop was to give the profits to conservation projects. So she wanted to gain a little bit of knowledge about grant making in the nature conservation space, but also who was around locally that she could possibly give funds to when they were up and running. So we had this little meeting and she told me about the Good Op Shop and I thought, oh, that sounds really good. I might actually come in and she said oh we're looking for volunteers if you're interested and so my partner and I came in for a look and started volunteering on a Saturday afternoon. It is quite funny because I do work, I work pretty much full-time and run a local land care group and as school council president up at the Castlemaine Secondary College for the last 10 years and so my friends do say what the hell are you doing why don't you just have Saturdays off why are you doing this and I don't know why <laughs> I honestly don't know why it just it's just so lovely here and we just have a really nice time and I like volunteering with my partner as well and we're both big into op shopping and always have been raised our three kids at op shops so we've always bought in this fashion and now our kids are all older they're 17 19 21 and they are still op shopping they're still advocating against fast fashion so it's, it still has remained with them so it's all still big in our lives so one of our teenagers did volunteer here with us when we started as well she was doing year 12 and she used to come in on a saturday afternoon with us so it was sort of became a bit of a family affair, really. And I don't know, it just must be the way that Tiff and Chris are running the shop that it makes us volunteers feel like it is a part of us and we are a part of it. And we have some sort of ownership. And here we are on the holidays doing our second working bee. Why? Again, I've gone back to work. Or what am I? <laughs> Take the day off work to come do a working bee at the op shop. Dunno, I don't know what it is. There's just something so grounding about being here amongst all this stuff and trying to make sense of it trying to put it out in a way that people are going to want it and stop it from going to landfill like there's just something so earthy and lovely and beautiful about doing that kind of stuff that keeps us coming back that's great have you been able to help tiff and chris decide 
where to send some of the funds? Yep, so it's a little bit nepotistic because the, the first grant actually did go to our land care group, the Muckleford Catchment Land Care Group, but I did put an application in and Tiff and Chris got to learn a bit about that process, what we were doing in the local area and how important their small funds could be in a small project. So we did a, a planting project, but it was actually stage three of a larger restoration project that had been going over a number of years. And so their small funds helped us to actually finish off quite a large project that had been running over a really long time. Small funds can be really useful in that way. Sometimes you don't need a big grant, you don't need a lot of reporting requirements, you just actually need $500 to buy the plants and get them in the ground where there was a gap in a massive riparian corridor. You know, there was just something there. And so then Tiffany then went on to, to support the Castlemaine Landcare Group as well with stuff they're doing and Turtles Australia. And I know for my own work in Wetton Hall Environment Trust, we'd also supported Turtles Australia. So I can also then give Tiffany a bit of advice about that sort of due diligence that she needs to do on that kind of grant making. But she is trying to keep it really local and so then she asked Graham from Turtles Australia to come here one Saturday and set up and he sat outside with all these turtles and people could come and see the turtles. There's a connection, a real connection between the grant making they're doing and the local community. I love that point you made about how just sometimes that little bit of money is enough to bridge a gap that allows a bigger project to come to full fruition. That's yeah, because it can go both ways. It can either be the leveraging element that allows you to go on and get larger funds, or in this case, it was at the end of a larger project filling a small gap. So it can go both ways, small funds. They can be terribly important to grassroots conservation groups. I think the other important thing for us is, I mean, my partner Neville, who also does Mondays at the Salvation Army, just doing the books, not the bookkeeping, the books. Oh, so it's like novels. And yes, <laughs> yes. Because again, he works full time and we wanted to get that work-life balance. So he took a day off working to go and volunteer at the Salvation Army to be amongst books because books is his big thing. And look, there's just a huge difference between those op shops and this op shop. This is so real. This is back to what op shops started out as being. Robin and Neil wrote a book about op shops and where they all first started and what they were like and I reckon this is really similar to what they were like back then you know they used to have community halls with tables set up and throw all the clothes on the tables in the middle and people used to you know be able to find really nice things for not very much money and so I, I really appreciate the fact that this is a real op shop with real prices and people can shop cheaply and economically and it's not just for people who don't want to spend a lot of money. It is also just about fairness, about the fact that you don't want to pay $7 for a shirt when you know that Kmart sold it for $3. And some of the big op shops don't get that. Don't they realise that the shirts are cheaper new than what they're trying to sell them for? And I just find that this is one of the last few remaining real op shops left in Australia. We see some wonderful young people come through. A lot of people come up from Melbourne and they're just blown away. They come up to the counter with absolute piles and piles and piles of clothes. And I say, oh, you do well here. And they're just like, can't believe it, can't believe the prices, can't believe you're charging $3 for a shirt. They're just blown away by the fact that the prices are real and that they can all get a wardrobe with, you know, student wages or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So I love seeing young people really happy 
with what they buy. I'm often on the front counter and I really like talking to the young people who are coming in and appreciate the fact that they can get what they want, not spend very much and not have to go into a fast fashion retail outlet to do it. I've really noticed your social media presence. You do great posts and you seem to always have some new connections. You've got these amazing volunteers. You've got someone who comes in and stitches things so can repair clothing for people. Yes. Which is the best kind of not recycling, but just fixing it so it has a longer Reusing. life. Reusing. Reusing. Yeah. And you've, you've got connections with the high school. Mm. I feel like you've done this great job of really connecting in with the community and getting people involved. Thanks. Um, Do you want to talk about some yeah. of your other volunteers yeah, who, yeah. who offer actual services? Yeah, so yeah. Lil comes in once a week on a Saturday, all day, and she does mending and repair of clothing and garments, and people make a donation, what they think it's worth, and then that gets put back into the business. So but Lil's time is 100% volunteer, and she's been doing that for maybe 12 months, and I think she's kept nearly a thousand things out of landfill and raised, you know, like something extraordinary amount of money in that time. So it's just a really lovely way that she likes to give back. She also works at the Repair Cafe. So once a month she's at the Repair Cafe and I think I put the word out to Chris Hooper from the Repair Cafe and just said we were looking. So I, there's not many people like Lil. She's pretty special. She is. And she's so who can offer that amount of time and commitment and ongoing enthusiasm. So we're pretty lucky. I hope she stays here. <laughs> <laughs> Stay here, Lil. And does she just repair or does she sit and actually teach people how to repair as well? She's more repair. Yeah. She's more repair oriented. Yeah. I think a lot of people these days, they just want in, out, yeah. get themselves fixed and then they want to get on with their shopping, whatever yeah. they're doing. I understand that there is a space for teaching people repairing, but what she offers is equally as important. Oh, absolutely. We also have Pam. She wants to volunteer, but explain that she found it physically demanding, doing a lot of the sorting and lugging of stuff. And she suggested that she can cut up excess clothing and stuff that we can't sell, that's stained or ripped or you know not, not sellable, into rags. And so she does that every Friday. She comes in and, and sits and just takes all our excess and you can be assured there's a lot. And so she just has this little mountain behind her and she works through a bag and she has a target of one bag a week. That's so great because you do hear, especially in terms of textiles, that a lot of people donate their old clothes to op shops and feel like they've done the right thing. But actually mm. a lot of op shops then on sell because not much of it is actually sellable in terms of putting it on a rack. Mm. And the rest just goes to the rag trade, which then goes overseas, which then lands in the mountain of textiles. And so donating your clothes to op shops is not necessarily mm. such a great thing to do. But if you guys are able to translate that into rags that can then be used as rags. <laughs> yeah, it's one more use out of them before they will end up in landfill. Mm. I really like that Pam does that as well because it keeps it local. So we can sell those bags of rags locally and people can use them. And like you said, it's an alternative to sending it off to developing countries where they can't cope with the problem. So I feel if the material's with us, we bought them, we've worn them locally, we should therefore dispose of them mm. locally. I'm quite keen to try and keep our stuff. In here. our own backyard. And there's no reason why we can't put it in the Castlemaine tip. 
Yeah. And I know it's really hard for people. They don't want to throw things away. The thought of it going to landfill is, is hideous. Like, yeah. it, I hate it. But at some point it has to go there. Like mm. There's no other way. Yeah. So we have to use our own backyard. Thinking about those things, and I've done a couple of episodes about textiles, it's made me really commit to buying only natural fabrics that can mm. be composted. Great. So yes. even after they've been a cleaning rag for a while, they can then actually be put in the compost. So they yeah. never have to land in landfill. Yeah, Whereas anything great. synthetic, you just have to put it in the bin. It's another form of plastic, really. Yeah. It's yeah. hard to think about clothing like that. If you've got used undies, you're not going to donate <laughs> no. those, hopefully. Yeah. But the, the idea of putting in the bin is really weird yeah you're not used is. to putting clothing in the yeah. bin like it's just this foreign thing yeah. but it has it has to go somewhere and I think I don't know if you would agree with this but there's a thing in the recycling world where they call it wish cycling mm. where people will put things in the recycle bin just hoping that it's okay to get recycled yeah. and a lot of that ends up in landfill because the recycling plant has to sort through what actually can be recycled and what yeah. can't and they end up putting it in landfill for us, but people feel good because they've put it in the recycle. Yeah, yeah. And I imagine that an op shop is just a bigger We're the version same. of that. Yeah, I was just thinking when you're saying that, that's literally what we are. We're just another recycling sorting facility. Yeah. And we're just picking out the bits that have to go yeah. to the bin because people didn't want to do yeah. that. Yeah, it's a great, great concept. And so on the topic of recycling, you have this amazing artwork on this board yes. out the front. How did that come about? So we applied for a council community grant for that project and it stemmed basically from getting a lot of people come in here and say, oh, do you know where I can recycle this or do you know what I can do with that? And so I just thought it would be great because I didn't know either. It would be great to have a resource where we could go, oh, if you look over there, you can find this or I think you can take it to this place here. So I also thought it would be like a one-stop shop it'd be great just to have a local recycling um, information board and that's what it became really a recycle information board and because that recycling situation changes so rapidly as well mm. like you need it to be updated and for people to know that it's a reliable up-to-date information yeah. it's hard to keep up to yeah. <laughs> we tried to do a lot of the research and I know there's some gaps still in there but once we've got the information together we wanted to work with the high school because they have some great upcoming people who love to do drawing and art. It's a really simple project actually because half the money went to the board being made and then the other half went to the students who designed the information that we gave to them and then came up and then drew, drew it up on the board. It's easy great. in a way. And now it's just a matter of letting people know it's there and also sharing it on social media. So I've taken lots of photos of it and then try and push it out there as yeah. well. And bit by bit because you've got batteries and polystyrene and there's so many different things that have different pathways for how to recycle mm. it that each one is a separate discrete piece of information really so you can just take a photo of a small part of the board and segment. post that yeah because if someone has a yeah. question like yeah. where can I do this yeah, well, yeah, yeah. try this yeah that's right yeah and you're also working with a high school now helping to raise money for yes. a bottle lid recycling machine machine a machine we need to raise $15,000 to buy these machines. So it's a really cool system. One gets the lids and shreds it up into tiny little pieces of plastic. And the second machine then takes that shredded plastic and melts it at a high temperature and pours it into molds so that then the kids can make new products. So some of the things they could make would be like a USB stick or pegs or hair combs, for example. So it could be an art or a creativity project or an industrial design project or 
Absolutely. Computer programming project. Yeah, which yeah. is why it's it's a, a really fun project because it has a whole lot of benefits to it. So the kids get to learn a whole lot of new skills, like you're saying, product design and coming up with that idea and how exploring how it might work. They get to look at marketing finances, how to sell it to people, what it would look like packaging it up and getting it out there and working as a team as well. And we're hoping they make a truckload of money and they can reinvest in new products again and again and therefore creating this a circular economy, if you like, but local circular economy. And that fits really nicely into with our vision to try and keep all our waste local. We'd love to see that happen. So we need $15,000 for these machines. And so the op shop and the customer and secondary college are working together and we're gonna donate $5,000 to the project. And your um, profits from the op shop. Yeah. yeah. And then I recently was received a, a prize through the Lee Lodden Murray Community Leadership Program for the project. We had to submit a project concept and I fleshed this out and put that to them. And so this particular project was the yeah, one you pitched? Yeah, great. Yeah, and I see it was great because it helped me think a bit more about it and go into the detail and talk about stakeholders and risks, all those things that yeah. I hadn't probably done. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, so yeah, I got first prize for that, which was awesome. And I didn't Brilliant. know this, but then at graduation, like they handed out these checks. So we got $3,000 check towards the project. It so was ginormous. Then, I saw it at the op oh, shop. Oh, did you? It was like as big as a room. <laughs> it was fun. I've never had a big fat check before. Yeah. One of those novelty massive checks. Yeah, that's I highly great. recommend it. <laughs> if you ever get the chance. So that's 8000 And then we've set up a My Cause campaign. So we've raised just over two and a half with that. I'll just interrupt again here because at the time of recording they were still looking for people to donate to the My Cause campaign but today, the day before this goes to air, I'm adding a quick edit because I saw that they had posted something on social media saying they had reached their target. So they've got all the money they need for this machine which is so wonderful. They'll be able to go ahead and purchase the machines for the high school and really get this project off the ground and running and we'll see what the kids can do with this technology, it'll be quite amazing. And I know that a lot of people have been collecting bottle lids for them, so <laughs> they'll finally have a place to go. And naturally we'd become a collection point for the bottle lids as well, as with the school. And I like this project because I think we were talking before, it creates this space where students can learn about recycling and this is how we can deal with waste, but it's not waste. It's a resource, it's something that we can use to make amazing things. And then they can go on and say, well, actually we don't know how to fix this other problem we've got over here, like soft plastics or textiles, how can we do that? And maybe it will inspire them to... Think broadly, yeah. in a little bit left of field about what, what we could do on lots of different levels. Fix our future problems, or yeah. our problems now. Our current problems <laughs> that are gonna affect our future. The ultimate goal of a circular economy is not necessarily that everything begins and ends right where you are, but that you know the full life cycle of any product. You know how it started, you know how it was made, yeah. and you're okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> and even if that comes from across the world, at least it's a good chain. And then how it finishes its life, so yeah. soil to soil, where it started and where it ends, not just it's gone into a big hole in the ground because we don't know what to do with it. Yeah. It seems like such a short time frame too that that's been happening. Yeah. I find that mind-blowing that yeah. repair used to be such a part of life and for many cultures still is, whereas, you know, in the last 50 to 100 years, everything's just become more and more disposable, faster, more manufactured. And now we're at this point where 
like you said, we don't know where something started and we don't know where it goes. I feel like that's a gap in a lot of people's knowledge. If we as households or as a community want to head towards a zero waste kind of lifestyle, we need to prioritise buying things that we know what we're going to do with it at the end of its life. And I don't think people, I don't, I don't have that mindset yet. You buy it because you want it or need it and then that's as far as you get. Yeah, exactly. That is the sort of consciousness shift that needs to happen for so many of us, myself included. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what happened? We'll I'm like talking tomorrow. about it with such enthusiasm, but I'm like, do I do it <laughs> when I'm like got a headache and I'm at the shops and I really like, just need to get home? <laughs> just buy it. Hurry yeah. up. <laughs> just this once. Oh, every time it's just this once. <laughs> Damn it. I think that's, that might segue nicely into one of our beliefs that the op shop is about keeping things cheap and affordable because it's another way of keeping them out of landfill. So any way that we can find to keep things in circulation for that bit longer, have people buying it from us rather than buying it new, that's, that's a real win. I feel like op shops have a bit of a, is it a blacklist for some people? They just can't bring themselves to come to op shops as an option. From what I can gather, it's somebody else has used it, somebody else has worn it, so therefore it's probably dirty or gross or unhygienic or that it's damaged or that might not work. Then we need to get over that whole thing and say it's okay, you can wash it, you can clean it and reuse it or turn it into something else, mm. upcycle it. Absolutely. And the truth is that op shops don't put out clothes that are stained or torn or worn out. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff that gets donated that goes straight through to the rag trade. Mm, or, that's true. Yeah. yeah. So what, how do you guys deal with donations? What sort of stuff do you get? What do people give you? <laughs> we, get, we get a lot of everything. We get a truckload of clothing. Clothing would be our biggest item. And we get a lot of books, which is fantastic. And then probably just random bric-a-brac, kitchenware, a lot of kitchen stuff, toys. Yeah. Is there a wedding dress on your wall? We've had a couple, yeah. Yeah. That's great. And I think there's a bit of a market in secondhand wedding yeah. dresses. And why wouldn't you when they cost a gazillion dollars yeah. each? <laughs> and they're only worn once. So yeah, I think it's just coming back to that psychology. I think the other thing is around, it takes time to op shop. Often people will go to a department store and knowing, I need this and I need it now. And this is exactly what I want and I've seen it already and I know they've got it. Whereas op shopping is a process. It's a, it's a luck of the draw thing as well. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's an experience. It is. You have to meander, you have to rifle through things. You have to take your time and, and be open to possibilities and see the potential in something. And I think some people can do that and some people find that harder, which is fine. Yeah, you're right. I mean, in a shop, you go straight to your size, straight to the cut that you want. It's all organised in ways that you can comprehend how to get it easily. Yeah. I remember there was a day we had <laughs> jeans for $1. <laughs> you had them all on a table and I rifled through and I tried on, say, 15 pairs and I walked yeah. away with 10. Yeah, good. And I was like, 10 Thanks, bucks for 10 <laughs> pairs of jeans? That's amazing. Good. Incredible. You're doing me a favour. <laughs> taking them away yeah, take them away that's no, good because you've kept that many out of landfill and it means they'll get another life yeah and you're a happy customer tick 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 so how do you feel like the vintage bazaar plays in that's got a stall holder setup where yeah. you can rent a three square meter spot within this giant warehouse and then yeah. whatever you've scavenged from garage sales and op shops yeah. you can then on sell and a lot of people do mend and repair and mm -hmm 
iron and like zhuzh up whatever yeah. they've found in someone's garage sale and on sell yeah. it but that's definitely much more upmarket mm. there's higher prices and it's more curated so people have got really interesting and yeah special stuff there it's not got the op shop vibe no no absolutely and people come to us and shop at the good op shop and then take their stuff and sell it at the vintage bazaar i and imagine they um, do that with op shops all of the op they shops. would yeah they would totally would and that's probably where they get their stock yeah and in my mind that's great because it's giving something another life like yeah. we're benefiting from it someone's given it to us for free we've sold it and made a marginal profit to then give back to conservation but they've also got a living out of it by selling it at the bazaar and it's creating this precinct and people come visit the bazaar because they want to come up from melbourne and and it keeps it all turning over and i think because they do curate it and they've got this whole big place and it's less cluttered people are probably more likely to pay that little more. bit more for it they do want to ultra cheap and come to us put, yeah totally. put in the miles yeah that's yeah. a nice perspective i think if it's keeping it out of landfill that's the main thing that's a win there's so much stuff out there there'll be more yeah there's always more <laughs> there's always more it'd be so funny when we get to a point if we do of when there's not more like what yeah. that would look like yeah we've run out of new stuff like how cool would that be <laughs> one day but there was a time when you went to a tailor if you wanted a suit. Mm. And these days you buy it off the rack. It's very rare to go get a fitted suit. How nice would that be? You still can. <laughs> <laughs> if you can afford it. Can afford it. <laughs> yeah. That makes me think of the videos that Jess does for us. So Jess is a volunteer. She will come in and will make a call out on social media for a model and say, does anyone want to come in and show us your style? And she'll work with the person choosing things, clothing, and saying, I'll try this on and try that on. And she sets them up out in the hallway. And it's like they have a fashion parade, basically, with themselves. And she'll video them and showing their unique op shop style. And it's so great. It's like this sustainable fashion reel. And everyone comes up with such a different perspective on fashion. You know, you see they could probably have three different people take the same outfit and wear it differently or put it together differently. It's a lot of fun and I think that's where a lot of youth are getting into op shop sustainability and fashion, like having this triangle. It's great to see. Yeah, and I think a lot of young people are deeply concerned about the state of our planet and how our consumerist ways are affecting us all. And so, yeah, there is a, there is a lot of value in their minds to op shopping. Yeah. Not just financial yeah, value. Not just financial. <laughs> it's dirt cheap. Yeah. Yeah. And we gave out also a thousand dollars in a local award that we had. So we set up an upcycling award for local residents and we had $1,000 in prizes, which encouraged people to get on into upcycling and making stuff out of things that were destined for landfill. So yeah, that was a lot of fun. That was called the Better Shape Up Upcycling Award and we're gonna run it again next year. What sort of things were people submitting? Was the task to pick something from the op shop or just anything upcycling? Anything, yeah. yeah. So some people did pick up stuff here and there was three categories. One to keep the most stuff out of landfill, one most original idea and one most artistic. We had a panel of three judges, independent, not me, who helped make the decision. And we had about 18 entries. So it was pretty good, pretty good for a first stab. 
There were some really cool things people's take on taking something that you wouldn't normally think would be used for that purpose and then turning it into something that could be yeah, used practically. Yeah. I guess the idea was getting people to see resources differently and have a bit of fun as well. I think it's nice to sort of get behind the community and say, hey, have a go at doing this. I think there was quite a lot of appreciation from that perspective of supporting and giving back to people, just people doing their thing. But that's the sort of thing where a that's bit of creative my... thinking can really transform something. Yeah. And that's the kind of thinking you need when you're upcycling because it's not just mending or repairing or reusing yeah. the same thing for its original purpose. It's trying to think about how something could become something else entirely. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. And people come with the greatest ideas. So one of the winners from last year's award was a doorstop. That, and the base was a broken blender. <laughs> And then they'd use, they turned it into a bird, like a doorstop bird with a long beak and old socks were used as part of its body. I was just like, oh, that's so good. So good. Because really, where's that blender going to go? Yeah. It's not, not going to have a happy ending. So that's, we all need a doorstop now. We all need a bird doorstop <laughs> made out of blenders. I actually do. I'd love more oh, doorstops in my life. Because when I open up my house to get the breeze through, windy. The, the doors all slam. Yeah. It frightened my dog. Did you exhibit them or? We did, and we had a people's choice vote as well, which was fun. So a lot of this was just done on the fly, it's often the way. So yeah, just coming up with the idea and then running with it to see what would happen. What prizes did you offer? How did you incentivize? Money. Money, mm -hmm. cold hard cash. Yeah, so we gave out $1,000 in prizes. Or $300 for each of the first prizes, and then we opened it up to the Facebook world and said vote on this, and the people's choice got $100. Great. Yeah, and it was just a nice way to, yeah, put the money out there. I'm hoping we'll get more youth and kids involved next time. It was all women. Yeah. Which was interesting too. My name's Mary. I live in Mexico usually, but I'm here visiting at the moment because my mum lives in Campbell's Creek. So, so <laughs> what am I doing here? Just to volunteer at the up shop. <laughs> yep, that's it. No, every time I come back, I like to yeah, I like to come hang out here and volunteer for a day or two, and chat to Tiff and meet the other people here, and yeah, get ideas and kind of build community. Other people that are interested in upcycling and reusing and trying to change our patterns of consumption. I sniff out op shops that I, <laughs> it's, it's my favourite thing to do with my time, yeah. dig through all the treasures. Yeah, One person's trash is another person's treasure, isn't it? Absolutely, and I think that's a really funny thing about having multiple people in the shop because somebody will say, oh no, that can go in the free pile, or maybe somebody won't want that anymore, and, and someone else will look at it and be like, oh, what an amazing treasure, that can't be thrown out. So what do you do when you're in Mexico? What's your life? Pretty much this. <laughs> I have a space called La Loba, which translates as the she-wolf, basically, mm -hmm. and it's an upcycling and vintage space. So I give sewing workshops and teach people how to upcycle clothes and I repair vintage things and try and return them to their original state and I sell them. Are you a seamstress? Not really what I'm trained in. I've been doing it a long time. I've been doing it since I was five. My mum and my grandmother taught me how to sew when I was five. I've improved a lot since then. I'm 33 this year. So I've always kind of done it as a passion project. And then I moved to Mexico. I went there for a holiday. <laughs> I couldn't really speak Spanish. I was there for a month and a half and then I came back to Australia and, and I was like, okay, bye, I'm moving to Mexico. And everybody thought that same thing. They're like, oh, you've fallen in love with a Mexican. I was like, no, just the place. I, 
I, I really like the people. I don't know what they're saying, but I have a good vibe about it. So, um, yeah, it was a bit strange. I don't know if I would pack up and move somewhere else just like that, but it's going well for me. In Australia, I used to work with migrant and refugee populations in community art projects, and I moved to Mexico, and I realised nobody was going to give me any funding to do any of that kind of work, so I thought I would start sewing and do textile projects. Mexico definitely has a reputation as being dangerous and gangs and drugs. <laughs> what yeah. is Mexico actually like, and where are you living? I live right in the centre of Mexico City. Yeah, look, I'm not going to lie, there is a level of violence that is kind of normalised in Mexico. I haven't directly experienced it, but a lot of the, the cartel violence, it's very real, but it, it's mostly between the drug cartels. Civilians do get caught up in it occasionally, but it's a lot of fighting for territory and fighting for control, or when the government tries to take over a drug cartel area. But yeah, on a day-to-day, I feel pretty safe there and I feel like people are pretty caring. There's a good sense of community. So my show is about sustainability and climate and the purpose of this episode is to talk about how op shops serve a function in terms of keeping things from landfill and giving people an alternative to fast fashion. Is any of that part of your reason for wanting to volunteer here? Yeah, so, I mean, I really love clothes. I, I love looking at them. I love touching them. I love looking at their design, how they're made. But, yeah, definitely the passion behind clothes is... I mean, all, all the bright colours and sparkles, obviously, that's really appealing. But it's also the process of making clothes and the process of transforming clothes. So I'm a strong believer that we actually don't need to be producing any more stuff. And you come here and you see all the donations. And it's lovely to see that people are donating things, but it's also overwhelming at times to just think about how much stuff there is in the world. So, yeah, my passion's really upcycling and teaching people to sew and to look at their clothes in a different way, to look at clothes and appreciate the value that's gone into the garment, so the resources that have gone into it, the person that made it. I think there's a bit of a perception the robots make clothes <laughs> and that you just kind of feed fabric into a machine and a T-shirt pops out, but it, there's actually a human being who's sewing that T-shirt. And so I think upcycling, when you start to look at a garment and how it's made, I think you have a different appreciation of all the work that's gone into it. And rather than just throwing it in the rubbish bin, you can give it a new life. And I think that's a really powerful thing we needed to keep surviving on this planet. And people used to do it all the time. Grandparents used to darn socks. So I think it has an environmental value and it has a real sentimental value that makes us feel useful again. I think learning how to sew and learning how to bring something back from the brink of extinction. <laughs> if your t-shirt's got these big holes in it, learning how to turn it into a rag rug or turn it into something that you might use again. I think it's really important for people to feel that things can be useful and that, that we can be useful. There's a lot of doom and gloom around climate stuff, but there's also some really inspiring opportunities that, that come out of it. Yeah. I love that. Upcycling as a metaphor is a really profound and beautiful thing to think about. Yeah, and I like being here because and talk to other people who are passionate about it and kind of share ideas and when we look at the climate crisis more broadly we do need to form community and we do need to keep feeling inspired by each other and share ideas because yeah it's a really powerful thing being able to come together and, and volunteer and look at what the alternatives are and how we want to build other possibilities
You've been going for 18 months now and obviously it's a pretty hard slog just starting up and you'd set yourself the challenge to see if you could even last a year and now you're at a year and a half, which is amazing. (laughs) But We're surprised too. Are you starting to get a sense of maybe looking out beyond that immediate goal and feeling your way into what might be next or what could be five or ten years down the track if you really grew? Yeah, definitely. We want to take the world over. Cool. Yeah, sure. I'm behind that. Yes, it's a lot of fun coming up with ideas. And this is something I didn't know would happen when we started this. Two great things is just meeting so many cool people, like the volunteers and the community, and being exposed to people I would never get to meet. And the other bit is just the creativity and the fun that we can have with it, but also while trying to make the world a slightly better place. And so thinking into the future, We'd love the op shop to be recognised as a place where we are focused on sustainability and that is a really important part and reducing landfill and trying to reach towards a zero waste target locally. Bring the whole community into zero waste. Yeah, I think so. I'd love that to happen. So basically Castle Main and Surrounds to have no waste. What would that take? And is it possible to all be using and reusing stuff? Especially clothing. I think clothing is probably our biggest challenge textiles as a community yeah I find that a really interesting challenge Um, I think especially the synthetic clothing or the synthetic components of clothing yes it's the wool and the cotton you know they're fine fine yeah we love them linen compostable great Great. hemp compostable great (laughs) I'd love to create a textiles incubator so perhaps have a place where people with ideas on how to reuse the textile waste that we have and turn it into something else or reuse it or repurpose it into whatever, mm. absolutely whatever. And like you said before, really thinking creatively, not just making another fashion label. That's fine, but maybe even something a bit more different and fostering that. So a bit like an artist in residence, have a designer in residence. and Love that. Yeah, it'd be fun. It'd be really fun. But I think that's where we want to pitch ourselves, keeping things out of landfill, making it an experience where people want to come and explore sustainable fashion. And then that enables us to then give back to nature and conservation as well. Yeah. When we make our billions. 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 You don't even need billions. (laughs) But it'd be great if you had billions. That'd be wonderful. And I guess, I mean, in terms of that journey of being part of the community transitioning or figuring out how to do zero Mm. waste, because I see you do great social media posts and you're doing stuff with the school and you've got that chalkboard that we talked about earlier mm-hmm. with how to recycle. That all is like communication and education. Mm. Are there other prongs to that or is it just more of like how would you like to be part of that conversation? What would you like to do to create that conversation? It is a good question and I probably haven't thought yet to the how. I think I can see what I want us to be and maybe we just play a part in that and it would be working with a whole lot of other groups and partners and councils to recognize that we've got this product or resource that we can keep using and how we can become innovative in doing that we need to think of new ideas and even partnering with organizations like yimby who are doing the composting and awesome and they're educating and helping facilitate people who can't compost they're facilitating them to be donate their compost to other people who can compost Mm -hmm. you know that sort of stuff and they're just doing that with compost yeah and if we have 
or encourage streams. or, you know, find ways to do that with every other stream. Mm. As you said, with the high school students earlier, yeah. you know, you get one project up and going and then they go, oh, hang on, if we can do that with this, why can't we do that yeah. with X and Y? Yeah. So I feel like maybe we're the motivators, the pushers and enablers, and then they can go away and dream it up and make it happen. Yeah. I think if we keep thinking it's our stuff, let's keep it here. Let's redo it. But also don't buy the thing unless you know, as we were saying before, unless you know how it's going to yeah. go out the other way. Yeah, or you can reuse it in your life cycle in here. I'm just <laughs> I'm now going <laughs> through in my mind all the just purchasing decisions I've made lately <laughs> that I have not been applying those rules to. And I'm like, oh, dear. <laughs> that's okay. But you're, I think that's great what you're starting with your rubbish analysis I mean, that's part of The really of been it. challenge. Yeah. I mean, how great is it to go, okay, this is what's in my bin. I can't reuse at the moment any of this, so how can I find an alternative? And then we don't have to address that challenge later on because you've moved away, you've found an alternative. If you find an alternative to milk, let me know. As in not having milk or? Yeah, I can't live without milk. Cow milk? <laughs> yeah, I do like cow milk. You don't get... The Schultz glass bottles from Gringos. Oh, yeah, I could do that. And you take the glass bottles back to them. Okay. You are left with the lids, but if your high school project goes ahead, you've got somewhere to put the lids. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Thanks. And I do think a lot of people, like when you think about it, it's really easy to feel defeated. And it's the same problem as climate change and global warming generally, is that if you think about the entirety of it, it's overwhelming and depressing. Yeah. And you can't do anything. And what we have to do in both zero waste and climate change and any other massive complex problem is just tackle one thing at a time. Yeah, you can't think about it. And forgive yourself for not achieving it perfectly yeah. immediately because you can't. Sometimes I've joined some zero waste sort of Facebook groups and chat groups and stuff, and sometimes it gets really judgy. I know. And I'm really not into that. <laughs> And I, and I think we really need a lot of generosity of spirit yeah, because totally. also it's very ableist to assume that everyone is yeah. able to act on yeah. all of these great ideas. No. And it's just not possible for a lot of people. It's definitely not. And, and so we need to be really generous, but also still have that intention of chipping away yeah. and changing one habit at a time. And Absolutely. I don't think the planet needs perfect. It can't afford perfection it just needs us to do something now yes yeah. don't worry about now yeah getting it right just do something just a small step I think that's the most important thing and the other thing I like how you said you know you can't think about it too much because often when volunteers start they get the overwhelm mm. at the shop and it's this really interesting thing like oh my god you're bringing in more stuff <laughs> <laughs> the trolley keeps coming in and I'm like yep there's more <laughs> And you can't think about it. You can't start doing the maths in your head. Like if there's this much here, imagine how much there is over there. And, you know, we're just one small little lob shop. But we're doing something and they're doing something by volunteering there. And it's helping keep that out of landfill as much as possible. So it's a good thing. And so some nights I go home and just go, holy shit, we've got so much stuff. But then I just go, nah, nip that in the bud. Don't think about it. Just get up and do it. Just keep doing it. Yeah. And if you weren't doing it, 
then there'd be so much more going to landfill or going to a different op shop, different which op might shop. dispose of it in ways that are not sensitive yeah. to the environment. And but even they're doing their bit, and that's awesome. Like, eventually and more op shops will come, and there'll be more and more, and hopefully we'll get to that point that I wanted to get to, where there's no new. There's no more new stuff. I yeah. think it is um, important to not look too hard or too big. Keep it local and just keep going. This is our stuff. Let's just deal with this and maybe we can't keep it all out of landfill, but maybe we can keep 80% out of landfill and that's a win today. And maybe tomorrow we can do some more. Yeah. I feel like with creating this podcast, every person I talk to is doing just one job amongst all of the mm. jobs that need to happen yeah, to make great, climate action happen. Yeah. But if each of them tried to do everything, everyone would be paralysed and like curled up in a ball in the corner of their... Just be vomiting. <laughs> <laughs> But awful. to talk to each person and the amount of effort and work you put into making this op shop run is incredible. I feel like there's a bit of a change and maybe it's because of the circles that I'm moving in and reading my Instagram feeds. But it's really uplifting that there are people out there in the world doing other things. All the people that you do interview, it feels great to know, oh, thank God, someone's dealing with the compost and someone's trying to save this frog over here. I also feel like that's a great message to send to our youth because I don't know if you remember what, what you experienced, but going through, you know, those teenage years, it was depressing. You know, you suddenly get this sense of the world and it's dire and we're effing it up and it's still so powerless and just, it's just hopeless. And I don't want youth to feel like that. I want them to feel like, it's okay, there's other people doing stuff. We can do it together, you yeah. know. And you don't, no one person has to do it all. Exactly. We don't need that hero who's going to fly no. in and save the whole world. Yeah. We need all of us. I actually read a cool article on that. There aren't any heroes. Like, it's the collective that make the hero things happen. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. I'm a big fan of that idea. As much as I love watching Marvel movies. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> Escapism is wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. So there you go. That was Tiffany Inglis and her volunteers, Ruth and Mary, just two of many, many people who've jumped in to help at the Good to Op Shop. The article Tiff was talking about right at the end is called When the Hero is the Problem by Rebecca Solnit, and I highly recommend it. I've linked to that and to many of the other references in this episode in the show notes at saltgrasspodcast.com. So if you want to look back and, and see any of the things we were talking about, just jump online and you can see it. You can follow us on all the socials and you can subscribe to our email list and get reminders and updates about the show also at saltgrasspodcast.com. This program was made possible with support from Main FM and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. My name is Ellie Hanley. Thanks for listening. Salt, salt, of the earth. Salt, 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 grass, Listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com.